everyone. Welcome to School Stories. I'm Stephanie, the host of this podcast. I'm an educator, a runner, a recreational writer and musician, and a very curious creative person. I put educator first on that list because it's my career. It's what I spend the bulk of my time doing and what I've poured my heart into since I graduated college in 2010. I've been a middle school teacher, a department chair, an education consultant, a coach to school leaders, and now a curriculum developer for individualized learning programs. But my most important role in education was my role as a student. Like all of you, school was my full-time job for the first half of my life. And I must say, it was a tough gig. I think my trajectory as an educator started in third grade when my teacher put a cardboard box around my desk to keep me from staring out the window. That was the beginning of my very fraught relationship with school, one that I've been unraveling ever since. This podcast is part of that unraveling. School Stories is a podcast about creative people and their relationships with school. I interview friends, colleagues, and strangers about how school did or did not support their growth as a creative person. We discuss how school informs who we become in unexpected ways and what we wish for education moving forward. At School Stories, we know that our identities are wrapped up in our schooling experiences, and we're eager to learn from those experiences so we can do better for creative kids everywhere. Because we know creative kids are all kids. I'm super excited to share this first School Stories episode with you, where I interview my friend, colleague, and overall kindred spirit, Anthony Gordon. He's a San Antonian, originally from Detroit, the product of a fascinating upbringing that points to the connection between school and creative identity. He's an educator, a DJ, a poet, and I couldn't be more grateful that he agreed to be my first guest. Let's jump in. I really hope you guys enjoy. In the end... The hardest thing in life to do is be yourself when everyone around you is trying to make you into someone else. But I am poetry, even if the rest of the world can only see me as random words scribbled on a page. Hey, Anthony. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, all right, so let's just dive right in. Will you tell us who you are and what you do professionally and recreationally? All right, uh, my name is Anthony Gordon. I am a father, a husband, a teacher. Poet, DJ, I know that sounds like a lot. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. I've been living in Texas since uh, 2002. Um, so this is my new home, but still very connected to my roots in Detroit. Um, professionally, I'm an educator. I've been in education for 10 years, um, working as a teacher um, and in administration and now regional management now. With idea, I've also worked with Kip for several years in the private sector. Starting out, um, English is my my main subject <laughs> that I taught for most of my career. Uh, recreationally, um, I write quite a bit. Um, I am a slam poet. Um, I've been doing slam for about ten years. Before that, I've been writing poetry since middle school. So always a fan of writing. I used to think I was going to be a rapper, and it <laughs> kind of evolved into poetry. And I also DJ. DJing is something I got into in high school. I started, uh, like most DJs, carrying records for uh, the school DJ that we had to DJ to all our dances. And he uh, took me under his wing and showed me the ropes. And so I've been DJing basically since high school. Awesome. Cool. Um, okay. So I thought a good way to start would be 
for you to read us a poem, just so that we can start to learn more about you as an artist. Okay. So you want to try that? Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I actually have a poem that's that's kind of connected to what we're talking about. Oh, awesome. So uh, this poem is called The Making of a Poet in Four Parts. One, I was a forgetful child. When I was six, I misplaced my identity, buried my individu- individuality under a perception, all because the kids at my school didn't talk like the kids in my neighborhood. So I learned the art of isolation, created a world where my BFFs were college prep, not free and re- reduced lunch, where the code of the streets drowned out Catholic school church ser- sermons about turning the other cheek, where the gunshots outside of my window were a 4th of July fireworks show on perpetual loop. When my dad's smile was my sunrise and not a lunar eclipse. Became lost inside of myself. Avoided obligations, discarded my dignity, caged my courage, muted my motivations in hopes that no one would notice I was different. Moral. As a child, it's slightly worse being an individual than completely invisible. Two. I've often struggled with what I should believe in. Got in trouble one Sunday for throwing Kool-Aid on Jessica McGlone's pretty Sunday dress because she called me fat for taking extra cookies from the pre-service snack table. As a result, the pastor told me I had to treat my faith like a spectator sport. He said his savior did not condone passive-aggressive outbursts from his saints. As I sat quarantined in the back of the church that day, he spoke of Jesus destroying the temple because the heretics had become contradictions of his father's teachings. To this day, I've not been able to determine the difference in our actions. Three, the day I turned 18, surrounded by friends, someone asked me if I felt like a man. I told them I didn't know. It was the most honest answer I could come up with. They all laughed at me, amused at how I had reached this milestone and not magically felt different, as if I was the only one who had not read Manhood for Dummies, but my copy was lost in the rubble of the quake that split my parents along multiple fault lines leaving me on an island to fend for myself. As my childhood expiration date came and passed, my mother just sat there staring at me every day, knowing I was not yet old enough to throw out, but my days were numbered. Four. As an adult, I've been told I talk about myself way too much. I guess I'm just trying not to forget who I am because it took me so long to figure it out. In the end, the hardest thing in life to do is be yourself when everyone around you is trying to make you into someone else. But I am poetry, even if the rest of the world can only see me as random words scribbled on a page. It's only because they have not yet learned the power of their stories. Whew. Damn. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I need a second. (laughs) Somehow that made me feel like I was going to cry and vomit all at once. (laughs) That That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, well, we have a lot to talk about. Cool, cool. Let's get into <laughs> um, it. So, just to reel it back a little bit, I think uh, we have a lot of overlap in our professional lives. Yes. Um, we both worked at KIPP in Houston, and I think are at around the same time. Yes. Um, and now we <clears throat> work on the same team at the charter that we both work at now. <clears throat> um, sorry, guys, recovering from the poetry. <laughs> um, <laughs> And we actually have had identical roles supporting campus leaders in improving individualized learning programs at their campuses. So um, I think we also share similar philosophy around teaching and learning. Yes. Um, but our journeys into education are obviously very different. Yes. Yeah, you're from Detroit. <laughs> I'm from Houston, a pretty insular Jewish community. Um, so it's interesting how, how um, 
our lives intersect, but are also very different. Right. So, um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit more about where you're from and a little bit more about your upbringing. Okay. Um, like I said, originally from Detroit, um, lived with my mother um, and my two brothers and sister. Um, my mother was married twice and my father was married three times, so I have a very big extended family. I actually have five sisters and two brothers in total. Um, from We're, we're kind of like the Brady Bunch, so it was always an interesting dynamic. Um, though my parents weren't together, uh, my mother worked really hard to make sure that my brothers and sisters and I still have very close relationships. So I did spend a lot of time with my stepsisters and uh, with my brothers and sisters that I live with. Um, na- my neighborhood in Detroit was, um, it wasn't the worst neighborhood. It, it was, it was kind of like a working class neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But um, if you know anything about Detroit, um, after the riots of 68, there was like a mass exodus. And so uh, the communities like rapidly deteriorated over the course of years. So um, what I remember growing up as a very young child in my neighborhood um, was was very nice, um, a lot of community, and uh, just a gradual deterioration to uh, where it got to by the time where I was in high school. It was a pretty rough place. Mm-hmm. Um, Detroit as a whole is a pretty rough place. Um, but uh, just, just uh, crazy experiences, especially with school. Um, my mother was very big into education, just a little background on her. She's originally from San Antonio, um, so it's interesting. I ended up back here. Uh, her father was a pastor and a civil rights activist here in the city. My mother actually integrated San Antonio public schools, um, wow. and so she was very big into education. She uh, graduated from Hampton University at 20 years old wow. and then moved to Detroit. Um, so she always pushed for us to have the best in education because she understand and knew the power of it. So... Um, I always like to say, and I'm, I talked about it a little bit in the poem, that I was a public school kid going to private school. Mm-hmm. And so my neighborhood and my school looked a lot different. I went to a, a very strict Catholic private school, St. Scholastica School in, in Detroit uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, got a great education. Um, But the reality was there were like three of us from my neighborhood that went to that school and everyone else went to public school. Um, This was really a challenge for me because I didn't get along with the people I went to school with. You know, my mom was a single mom. She owned her own business. So she did provide for us and we had a pretty decent life. Uh, But she struggled, you know, and, and so... That was what I saw around me every day. Mm-hmm. And I would go to school with people whose parents were judges and lawyers and mm-hmm. doctors. So I was always kind of looked at as the the poor ghetto kid at the good school, you know. So it was always a weird dynamic. I got picked on a lot. I got bullied a lot um, just because of those things. Like I didn't fit in. I didn't have the newest Jordans or or the we wore guest jeans back then. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, right? so, you know, I wasn't able to, to really keep up with that. So, you know, kind of became, uh, you know, the target of a lot of bullying and things like that, which really shaped who I am as an adult. Yep. Um, but uh, going into high school, my, my older brother was going to U of D Jesuit, which was 
top five high school in the in the state at the time, um, run by Jesuit Jesuit priests, so wow. very strict. It was all boys school, and the thought of going there horrified me. You yeah. know, especially with the experience I'd had coming up through through uh, elementary and junior high, I knew it was going to be more of the same. And even at a higher level, I mean, there were kids driving Hummers to school. And this was before they had a Hummer dealership. Like, <laughs> like a Hummer was a, like a really hard to get at that time. And so, you know, I, and then knowing some of the experiences my brother had, who was a couple years older than me, mm-hmm. who was there, I, I didn't want to go there. I wanted to go to my home school, the public school where all my friends were going. My mother basically told me I didn't have an option. So my first two years of high school were, were very tumultuous. Um, I, was a, I was a good athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I got a lot of um, exposure because of that, but uh, also dealt with a lot of the bullying and um, even looking back now, uh, a lot of uh, really racial bullying, mm-hmm. um, e- even more than than just the uh, financial side. Mm-hmm. And um, I just really didn't deal with that well. Yeah. Um, so I ended up getting kicked out after my sophomore year and then going to public school for... Um, my last two years of high school, um, the getting kicked out was was partially of my doing. Um, I, I don't think I really valued what I was getting, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't see past the the issues I was having at the school to see the bigger picture of no, this is really a great education. And you know, you're you're a teenager, yeah, right? Totally. So I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted to go play football with my yeah. boys and things like that. So I ended up going to a public school, Redford High School, um, for my junior and senior year, and it was horrible. Like it really was horrible. And it's it's not even one of those things where looking back now I could tell it was horrible. It was one of those things like the moment I walked in the door, it was like, Oh crap, what did I do? Yeah. Right? The first day of school coming in going through metal detectors, which I had never experienced in my life up until my junior year of high school, right? So I'm pretty lucky with that, right? Walking through metal detectors. We're walking into the main hallway and there's this huge glass window where the cafeteria is. An all-out brawl, not even a brawl, it was like a riot breaks out. This is like within 10 minutes of me being in this school. Now, I've been at a school where I've probably seen four fights from kindergarten through 10th grade, right? And there's like 50 people in the cafeteria fighting, throwing chairs, police officers. We had a police mini station in the basement of the school. What? Yes. Police officers come running in the cafeteria and are literally knocking kids out like they're grown men and dragging them out of the cafeteria. This is within my first 10 minutes. Is this real life? Real life. It's like (laughs) my last two years of high school was like straight up like a movie. Yeah. It was crazy. I feel like the universe conspired to make like (laughs) you as terrified as possible the moment you walked through those doors. Yeah, literally like within 10 minutes. It's like this huge brawl, right? And and so at that moment I'm like oh crap like it's like it was like that I'm not in Kansas anymore yeah, yeah. like realization but right. you know even even with that at the time because a lot of that stuff I saw in my neighborhood mm-hmm. right so it wasn't something that was a complete shock but it was a complete shock to see it at school because mm-hmm. I'd always been in these super peaceful right. you know and outside of the bullying which I mean we know now as educators is pretty, is pretty common, you know, mm-hmm. but as kids, it's really hard to, to put that together. But yeah, like seeing that and then within a couple months, 
um, I believe it was October of that first year, my junior year, one of my really good friends who I grow, grew up with and known for years got shot and killed right in front of our school. I was standing right there. So I literally like saw my friend die. So going from, like I said, this situation where it was all peace and joy and happiness and learning to a situation where it was not only literally not safe, but I was two to three years ahead of everybody in the school. They actually ran out of classes for me my senior year. Mm -hmm. I had all electives. So like half of my schedule Sounds was elected. Yeah, it was really cool at the time. I'm like, yo, this is the greatest. I get to play basketball for like two periods, right? But in hindsight, it's like, no, that's not right. Yeah, like, wasted, yeah. Right? So like, yeah, I, I literally, my, my senior year, I had like two PE classes, an art class, because they ran out of classes because I'd already taken everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, at, and like you said, at the time, it was like, oh, this is cool. I get to leave. I get get out of school at 1.30. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. But was that really preparing me? No. You know, yeah. and, and looking back now and seeing where I am and where a lot of my friends are who had, had that reality for their entire educational lives, what prepared me to be where I am is the education I had mm-hmm. prior to going to the public school. So, um, yeah, that... That's always like a, a huge reflection and one of the like big conversations mm-hmm. I always have with our students who don't understand yeah. why they're going through the uniforms and the lines. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does make a difference. Yep, totally. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Right, um, no I yeah. want to know more about like who you were personally as a kid, like okay. outside of not outside of school, but like what was going on with you internally amidst all of that external stuff. Um. A lot of who I am now is, is I don't want to say I'm the same person, but very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, because I grew up in this space where I didn't really fit in with the kids I went to school with, right? So I was very isolated there. And because of my education, I didn't really fit in with the kids in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? So it was one of those things where I was... By myself a lot. You know, I play, I play my, my mom always bought us a ton of toys. Like, I had, like, G.I. Joe's, Transformers, <laughs> <clears throat> all that stuff. So, I really spent a lot of time to myself. Even my brothers and sisters, <clears throat> I don't necessarily have a lot in common with. Mm-hmm. So, it's one of those things where almost, I almost always isolated myself. But it forced me to um, really develop a crazy imagination. So I, I spent a lot of time like creating these worlds, even if it was like my G.I. Joe's and my Transformers are having this huge battle, yeah. <laughs> right? But I you know, I'm creating this world by myself really. You yeah. know, um I listen to a lot of music. I've always been a huge fan of music. So a lot of times it was me with my headphones on, reading comic books. You know, I had a few friends in the neighborhood who used to play Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. which is, you know. But um, honestly, there was really like one friend that I really connected with. He was a lot older than me. Now looking back, he was really weird. But um, <laughs> you know, he 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 had he really had this, similar personalities. So we connected a lot around like comic books and toys, and we played. He was one of the ones that we played Dungeons and Dragons with. And so it really was just me, uh, kind of isolated and developing my own personality. Um, my mom and I really didn't get along very well. Yeah. Um, 
until much later in life, until I was really almost an adult. Um, various reasons behind that. I think I was a lot like my father. <laughs> yeah, she didn't like it. But, um, you know, because my father's really artistic as well. Yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, people, I always tell people, like, people with artistic minds think differently. Right? Mm-hmm. Our brains work completely differently. And so I could be sitting in a space and, like, there's a lecture going on or, or, even in class, sometimes as a teacher, I would like I like completely drift off somewhere else. Yeah, and it's and and it's like a weird thing because it's almost like I drift off, but I'm still focused here. Right. But in the back of my mind, I'm like building this poem that I'm gonna write when I get home. So I think a lot of that was developed as when as a kid mm-hmm. because you know that was me. It was it was me with my headphones on, but still building this imaginary dream world that I had to live in to entertain myself because again most people couldn't connect with me right Mm -hmm. I was the I was the weird black kid in the hood who liked 80s pop and (laughs) listened to Cindy Lauper (laughs) and Blondie right you know I still love Run DMC but you know when when my friends like give me your Walkman and puts on my headphones and I'm listening to girls just want to have fun. He's like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? Right. So yeah, I was like the weird black kid who listened to pop and rock and, and love poetry, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I didn't really have anyone to really connect with. So I really like internalized and really connected with myself. And I feel like that's really helped me, especially as a writer, because I'm very <clears throat> in tune with, who I am, what mm-hmm. I believe, what I don't believe, and I'm able to like clearly translate that message to other people yep. uh, now. So, yeah, I was, I was a little weirdo. That's fine. Um, so, how did the you said you talked a little bit about like how imaginative you were mm-hmm. and the the whole the time you spent like building worlds mm-hmm. um, in your mind. So, can you talk more about how that imagination played out in school um, and kind of what how that was or was not supported um in school or if it even had a place in school or it was just something that happened on the sidelines right um well i'm i'm an 80s baby so i was in school in the 80s and again at a very strict catholic private Mm -hmm. school so it was it was during that time it was really more of a speak when spoken to your opinion doesn't matter you do what we tell you to do type of thing Mm -hmm. and so I hated school because school was the one place where I couldn't use my imagination I wasn't allowed to use my imagination right I wasn't allowed to voice my opinion I've I've always been very opinionated it's Mm -hmm. probably part of the reason why me and my mom didn't get along because I was more than willing to tell her things that I probably shouldn't have been telling her as a child. But, um, yeah, it it really wasn't supported at school. Um, You know, I I was in school when you still got paddled and things like that for talking back and Mm -hmm. or speaking out of turn. Um, I I struggled with school and I I hated reading, which is surprising now because you can't keep a book out of my hands now. But, like, I hated reading, but a lot of it was that I wasn't reading things that connected with me Mm -hmm. and I wasn't allowed to read things that connected with me. So we would go to the library and my teacher would give us books. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have opportunity to choose. She would say, here, you're reading this. And so I was the type of kid, I would go sit down and read the first chapter and be like, oh, this book sucks. Can I get something else? And it was like, no, read the book. You know, and so 
because of that, I, I developed like a hate for reading. Right, which so many of our students do. Right. Yeah. And, but looking back now, in hindsight, I actually loved reading because I was reading 10 comic books a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was the fact that that was something I connect with and I enjoy. And even like I had like Sports Illustrated for Kids subscription and Sports yeah. Illustrated subscriptions pretty much. From the time I was like in fourth or fifth grade. So looking back, I know I loved it, but it wasn't something that was fostered there. Um, I've always been like very creative and very talkative, um, which, of course, got me in a lot of trouble. I had a teacher (laughs) tell my mom once in a parent teacher conference that I talk so much. Half the time she thinks I don't even realize I'm talking, but I'm a conversational person. I, I like to like like you were just saying, I love to hear people's stories, their experiences. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't something that was necessary, necessarily fostered in school. It was like, no, you, you sit down, you shut up, you do this. Yeah. Then there was also the stigma of where I came from. Because a lot of kids I went to school with didn't come from neighborhoods like mine. They came from much better. Um, and so that became kind of a stigma, too. Um, I had a seventh, my seventh grade uh, English teacher. No, it wasn't English. She was social studies. Um told me one day in front of the entire class that I was uh, how did she say it? She said you're such a thug you're, you're just a oh little thug you're going to end up dead or in jail and there's no way you'll ever graduate from high school Ugh. like this is my 7th grade teacher telling me this and your like, job is to say the exact opposite right. and, that, and that, that's my thing like I'm that's, that's the age that I teach right? right so like I could never imagine like and and everybody has kids. It's like oh my god, I yeah. kicked this kid in the face, right? But our job as adults and especially as educators is even that kid that you can't stand. You have to find some goodness in them and foster right. that to help them get there right. where they need to be. So like that was like a huge moment in my life mm-hmm. because at, at that moment I knew like yo, I want to do something working with kids. And I never want to be like that woman. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like I want to do the exact opposite of what she did. Because the fact that she, you know, it wasn't even like she pulled me to the side. Like, she said it in front of the entire class. So, it's like one of those things where she says it and everybody just turns and looks at me like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, it, it, like, that's just like a huge turning point in my life, I think. And one of the main reasons why I'm in education right now. Just to, you know, because we, we often have people who come into our communities who either don't understand the people they're working with mm-hmm. or don't understand the power in their thoughts and ideas and words. And that could be like ridiculously damaging. Cause like the thing is, if I didn't have more self-worth for myself, yeah. that could have crushed me. Oh yeah. You know, but the fact that, I did have, you know, a little bit of self-worth and like at that moment, instead of being like, oh my God, she's right. It was, oh my God, I'm going to prove you wrong. Right, right. I'm going to get every degree that any college <laughs> offers and I'm going to come back and put it in your face. Yeah. Right. So that was the attitude I got from it. But how many kids hear statements like that and it, Especially it destroys seventh, them. Especially seventh graders right. who are just coming into themselves. And right. Like, that's so a very influential with time. So security. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Well... I heard you talking a little bit about how there wasn't like a space for you to be yourself authentically in Mm -hmm. school. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how 
that absence of, of space to be who you are influenced who you are as an educator and what you do differently as an educator that wasn't um, necessarily offered up to you as a student? Right. Um, I feel like I always give my, my students space to be themselves. What that teacher said to me was ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. It was she didn't know or understand who I was as a person. And instead of getting to know me better as a person, she responded with her own individual ideology of what I was or where I came from instead of getting to know me better. It's really about fostering young minds, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we look at kids as kids and don't realize like these are baby adults. Yeah. I feel like that's a huge piece of who I am as a teacher, like exposing my kids to things, taking them places, you know, uh, getting them outside of their neighborhoods, mm -hmm. um, exposing them to art, poetry, music of different kinds, um, different writers um, who may not look like them and those who do look like them. So they, they have a clear understanding of who they are as people and why that's important and what their place in the world is, but also other people's realities so they know where they fit in. Right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like if you are given permission to be who you are, mm -hmm. then you, you know, you project that out to others right. and you give them the space to be who they are and then you're able to connect more authentically. <laughs> right. And, 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 and I think that's really huge, especially for, uh, for people of color because a lot of times we are like pushed to be closer to the middle. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you don't have a clear understanding of who you are as a person or what your culture or background or history is or the importance of those things, then you're going to be more likely to migrate towards the middle instead of saying, no, this is who I am. And this is great. No, sit down. Let me tell you about these wonderful things that I am. And yeah. I come from. And I think that's where a lot of times we lose ourselves. And, and that's where. We find situations like we have today where there's this huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. Because a lot of times when people of color become successful, they leave and never come back. Because it's, there's this stigma of being that. Mm -hmm. But like, it's not that bad. If you think about it, like, you're, uh, like my, my neighborhood was horrible, like looking back now. But... When I was a kid, it was the greatest thing in the world, right? right? Block parties, like it was fun. But the reality of knowing now of where we were and what we had and didn't have is like, wow, we we went without a lot. But as a kid, you don't know that. But if you don't have those strong roots and ties to that community, you want to leave and never look back. Mm -hmm. And then the people who were there fall further behind while you know others get further ahead. So I think it's really important to have that understanding of who you are which is something I really push with my kids mm -hmm. too yeah and I feel like um I, I feel like you know you look back on your neighborhood and, and you recognize the difficulties or mm -hmm. the ugly parts but you also see how beautiful and vibrant and special it was and I feel mm -hmm. similarly about my background like there were things that were challenging and that I felt um that I felt didn't support, you know, my creative identity, mm -hmm. but I also recognize how beautiful it was. Right. Um, so, yeah, I feel I feel really grateful as a creative person to be able to like see things in that way. Yeah, and I, I think that's really the most important part, though. It's it's 
the beauty is the struggle, mm-hmm. right? So I want to hear more about, and we're going to run out of time soon, but I do want to hear more about how poetry and DJing came into your life mm-hmm. and um, if there was if there were adults or educators who tapped into that um, and leveraged it in your mm-hmm. education or if that wasn't the case, which is fine. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the, the DJing came kind of as uh, it wasn't directly connected to education, but I discovered it at school. Yeah. So there was a, a organization I was in that threw our monthly dances, and that's how I ended up connecting with the DJ who was a senior and I was a freshman. And yeah, so that that was like the natural progression of that. Um, didn't really have a lot of support for it. I actually stopped DJing for a while because my mom hated it. <laughs> so. Um, uh, so after like my junior year of high school, I kind of stopped it and I picked it up again when I started doing college radio in college. Um, poetry, um, I, I discovered my love for poetry in school. Um, Shel Silverstein. <laughs> Shout out. Yes. <laughs> Shout out, uh, So like Where the Sidewalk Ends is, is definitely like my poetry beginnings. Yeah. Um, I love Shel Silverstein. I still have a, Where the Sidewalk Ends on my bookshelf right oh, now. Oh, so good. Um, yeah. So, and, uh, but, but as far as like my personal writing, um, I entered a writing competition at school, I want to say when I was in fourth or fifth grade, and I won. Nice. And so from there, it's just always been really a part. It's evolved and, and worn many different hats. Like I said, I, I was a rapper for a few years. But <laughs> that kind of fizzled out. <laughs> um, and and then I uh, rediscovered it again when I was in college, which is when I got into slam poetry. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so how does... How does um, your creative life impact or um, inform your educator life? Um, It definitely, uh, especially doing English, it allows me to be a lot more um, creative with how I teach. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also just makes my class fun. I, I, I tell my kids on Monday, if we have a good week, we'll do a poetry slam on Friday, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now they're like on their P's and Q's all yeah. week because they want to do the poetry slam because just the concept of it is fun. Um, and I'm also able to, um, the way you think through poetry really helps with analysis of literature mm-hmm. because everything's so exaggerated in poetry, whether it's figurative language, metaphor, if you're able to really analyze and break down poetry, it makes breaking down literature a lot easier. So I'm often able to make connections with my kids by using poetry. So, um, for example, we were doing The Outsiders, and um, there's a poem called uh, called We Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks mm-hmm. that's very similar to the themes in The Outsiders. So when we were in a certain area of the book for our, our do now or warm-up, we broke down We Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks. And I helped, like, the kids were able to pull out the themes there, and it directly related to what was going on in the Outsiders at that time. So when we got to that space in the book, they were like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's mm-hmm. what we just talked about. So um, a lot of times it's really helpful for um, kids who may be struggling readers or um, just struggle with honestly um, breaking down text to, to give them a clearer perspective in a smaller chunk 
so that they're able to get it when, when you get into the bigger picture. Yeah. I feel like often as educators, we're like discouraged from bringing in our mm -hmm. own interests and mm -hmm. passions into the classroom. Like we're just supposed to be like knowledge bearers and not like human beings with yeah. um, <laughs> lives, out, <laughs> lives outside of school. But I always feel like, or in my experience teaching, my best lessons were always lessons that allowed me to share like pieces of myself mm -hmm. with my kids. Um, yeah, yeah I've, had, I've had some knockdown drag outs with, <laughs> with a few managers about lesson plans just because of that exact thing. But, you know, being like having the experience I had um, coming up in school, things like that would have been a lot more helpful for me. Because yes. even if it was a boring text or something that I didn't want to read... A lot of times it was because I didn't understand it or couldn't connect to it. Right. And if the teacher could bring something else in from the outside, it's going to help me make that connection. So now I'm not only able to make the connection, but I'm actually excited about making the connection. You know, right. I, I would have been reading tons of books years yeah. ago. <laughs> when you were sitting in the library and your, your teacher was just like, sit down, be quiet and read that book. She could have been like, here's a, po a poem, here's a song, you know, here's some lyrics right. that will draw out why this book is matters and how it connects to you and your experience with that text would have been totally different. Exactly. Um, so for me, it's really about like recognizing who the kid is and what matters to them and then using that to invest them in their own learning. Yeah. Um, so if you could travel back in time and teach mm -hmm. yourself, <laughs> knowing what you do about yourself and education now, what would you do to support your creative self? Um, <laughs> kind of a weird time travel question. <laughs> well, no, 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 I think I think it's it's real because I, I actually think about it all the time. Because I, I when when I'm teaching and and I'm getting to the point now. I've been in it so long I can actually hear myself saying things that yeah. teachers said to me. Like I'm a parent now and I can hear my mother coming through off all the time. So like, <laughs> it's something I actually think about quite a bit. Um, and I think the biggest thing that I would have changed or I would go back and change is being more diverse with the types of literature I was using, especially mm -hmm. like in my English classes. Um, you know, we, we didn't learn about ourselves. Yeah. Um, and if not for me really doing a lot more research when I got into high school and really wanting to learn more about myself and who I was and where I come from, then I would have no idea. You know, like we were, we were very, they were, I should say, very strict and very selective about the text we were given. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, I look back in a lot of the books that we read, while they're classics, they don't paint people as, of color in a very positive light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, like, mm -mm. dude, are you serious? <laughs> like, looking back at those books now, I was like, oh my God, like. That's that's all we were, you know. Yeah. So I, I think like building that in and and not just waiting for like Black History Month to <laughs> you know, or Hispanic Heritage Month right. to to bring out these these models and even at that it being very limited, like I honestly can say during Black History Month growing up, the only people we learned about was Harry Tubman, Martin Luther King, and Rosa Parks. Like, those are the only three black people that ever did yep. anything in life. <laughs> right? So, like, just being more diverse. Like, I look at, like, now, like, Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks and and Alan Locke and all these people who were, like, these amazing influences and, and had such important things to say, which 
honestly are just as much classics as as any other writer out there. If if our students are exposed to that, number one, the story is going to be more relative for them. They're going to see people who look like them and then their aspirations grow. And, and so I think that would be the biggest thing, just just being very diverse and selective about the messages and images I'm putting in front of yeah. our students or putting in front of myself. Right. Um, because I, I, I really think it would have changed the trajectory for me a lot earlier. Yep. Yeah. I I feel like every kid, all they really want is to be seen and valued. Yep. And that comes in a lot of different forms in, in school spaces. But one of the best ways to do that is to represent them exactly. in the text that they're reading and in the experiences they're having. Like you talked a lot about getting your kids out of the classroom. Yes. And letting them experience things outside of those four walls. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that I connect with that definitely. Yeah. So um, leave us with a wish for the future of education. Mm-hmm. What do you want for your students and what do you want for your daughters? Wow. Um, <laughs> I really want for schools schools to stop really being so, um, how do I say this? I feel like education is very cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and that's regardless of where you are, right? Public schools, depending on the area, you're pretty much getting this and nothing else. Yeah. And we don't care if you pass, we don't care if you succeed. Let's just get this month, state money in and run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, charters while they are, making significant changes and that's where I spent the bulk of my career and I've done great things with kids and in some pretty crazy communities um but I feel like a lot of times they sacrifice the things that we've been talking about mm-hmm. for the sake of that when I think it can be tied together right right art for me has been at the center of my learning and achievement the reason I read so much now is because I want to write. Yeah. <laughs> so I need to read to write. Right. right. So like tying those things together and, and making those connections is really important. Um, and even like my, my daughter goes to a private school and I, I would say it's kind of the same thing. There's a little bit more of the art and extracurricular, but I still think it, they're, they're kind of like binded to an idea and a philosophy that if, if it was a lot more free, um, kids would, would thrive and grow a lot faster. Um, for my students, I just want them to have equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, they don't get it and they're blamed for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the, the part that hurts me the most to, to have conversations with people and for them to say those people should be able to change their own situations. But the reality is, like, how does that happen? You know, that's not something that's really done organically. Mm-hmm. And when you think about these communities for generations, even like back to my mom and my grandfather, not having equal opportunity and really never having equal opportunity, but still be expected to create an equal product. Right. right. It's like it's like me having an assembly line and telling you like, I have a Ford plant and you have your backyard. You build a car. I'm going to build a car. Yeah. Let's see which one's better. Like mine's going to be better every time. Right. So I think just like that equal opportunity and and the recognition that there there's going to need to be some help. Like the school board controls 
public school. The, the city and state governments control public schools and the performance of public schools. So if the schools in this area are consistently underperforming, then it's not up to the people to make that change. Right. right? That's a systemic change. So I think that's like my biggest thing for my students, just for them to have equal opportunities. And for my daughters, I just want them to um, kind of the same thing. I want them to have equal opportunity because as as hard as it is for people of color, it's even worse for women, mm-hmm. right? And so I have three daughters, you know. So like that, like I'm actually working on a poem about that now. Like the hardest thing for me is to live in a world where I know not only are my daughters going to be looked at differently because of who they are but also because of their gender. And I don't want them I don't want that for them. Right. You know, I want them I want them to be viewed as equals in every way. So that, that's my biggest thing. And I, I'm preparing them for the worst but hoping for the best. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well hopefully with educators like you doing the work that you do and artists like you doing the work that you do. Um, we'll see that change. <laughs> yeah, we're, um, we're keeping our fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much. This was really, um, yeah, I, I love hearing your story. I love connecting with you in this way. And um, I'm very grateful to work with you. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, here. And to continue supporting each other in our individual creative journeys. So thank you. Thank you.